0: Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit OccultConfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital
1: airwaves.
2: Following her shaming at the hands of the Society for Psychical Research, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky decided that it would be best to leave India. She had considered filing a lawsuit for slander, but other members of the Theosophical Society felt that the tawdry court battle would have been even worse in its consequences. In fact, the scandal had served to draw more people into the Society, although its author, Richard Hodgson, despite his questionable methods and spurious conclusions, may have stumbled on an underlying truth. Blavatsky by her own admission, faked at least some of the phenomena she produced, but, as she would go on to prove in the last years of her life with her second major work, The Secret Doctrine, she was also a deeply gifted and erudite occultist.
3: Your vocab today is like all
2: Wait, Yeah, can you, uh, can you define erudite? Uh, she had, uh, nice words. Oh! Well, like you! I didn't have erotic words.
4: No. Just the nice ones. Just nice. What's the means well spoken. Yeah. 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 Cool.
0: So the court that they're talking about, she was on trial because people. were on Well, she leave. wanted to have a trial. She wanted to have it a- because
2: the SBR wrote uh, this long report about what a jerk she was. Hmm. Okay. Like that's like, let's like let's two have a episodes back now, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: To prove that she's not lying. Right. She but she lied to it. sometimes. Well, it
2: third. seems that way. No, wait. <laughs> well, she said a third so. of the time
3: she didn't lie, or she did lie.
2: She said that three quarters of the time she was making it up, but okay. one quarter of the time she was not. Ah. From the most recent okay. episode.
4: And then the secret doctrine was like,
2: bam. Yeah, the secret doctrine. Like you got. She's there's Something going on there. She's a pretty intense lady. We find out in this book. So we're going to find it's that an out today.
1: book. I'm it's excited. A,
2: <laughs> all right. My name is Rob. C. Thompson, I am a doctor of alternative religious ritual and the supreme hierophant of Our Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. I am joined, as usual, by our Grand Master Olivia Litterall.
3: I feel like that was a new title you just gave yourself. I don't think you've ever worded it that way. Can you way. just do that? Can you just give he yourself changes a changes it all the time. I'm the supreme
2: hierophant. So no, I I'm not can... your
3: title. You're,
2: you're... My doctoring. Yes. I do that all the time.
3: It was a new one. I liked it.
2: I like to, you know, keep it fresh. Spice it up a bit. For the kids. For, for the kids, kids. that are listening, James Caplanjus, <laughs> our captain of the table. Ahoy, me mates! pirate vibe again. Wrote yeah. Back a few episodes. Yeah. Uh, Savannah Varet is back again. Our sister of the eighty-fourth degree. Yes,
1: I'm back and I'm wearing our t-shirt, so I'm ready to podcast. Nice. Wow.
2: <laughs> and Shannon Landers, our instaquisitor, finally returning to the microphone. Hi. And what a <laughs> triumphant comeback it is. I <laughs> know. This is Occult Confessions.
5: We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors,
6: do solemnly
4: commit commit ourselves to a full
2: and honest
6: telling of
2: the history of the occult occult as far as as we know it. All right, so we're on about the secret doctrine today. There's a lot to make sense of in this book. We've got Atlantis and Lemuria and the first races of humanity and cosmogenesis and anthropogenesis. There's just a bunch. We'll
3: have fun with that one later. So
2: we're going to do something a little unusual in the way we handle the editing and posting of our discussion here. For those of you who are anxiously awaiting our episodes on Fridays, and there are some people who are like that, team. Calm down. <laughs> no we're or delighted, stay excited. Okay. We're delighted oh, yeah, stay excited by these listeners um, Okay, so, so that I have enough time to properly edit and assemble this episode we're going to post it in two installments the first one is going to be this week the one you're listening to and then we're not going to make you t- wait two weeks like we usually do we're going to go ahead and post the second half of this episode next week so we're going to do two Fridays in a row and then we'll take a Friday off and go back to our usual bi-weekly schedule does that make sense?
4: You're makes welcome. sense yes. to me. It sounds great. I'm excited. Cool. I'm ready to do this.
2: Uh, so new <laughs> listeners, uh, make sure you've subscribed so that you won't miss the second part of this conversation. And old listeners, consider donating to us on Patreon.
3: Patreon!
2: To help us fund the work that goes into researching, writing, and discussing ginormous topics like the one we're about to cover today.
3: It's so big. So it's big. So large. <laughs> large
4: in terms of volume. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Also, what else Occult excitement (laughs) Yes, occult
2: Large occult
3: Bursting with occult excitement. excitement Yes,
2: it's bursting with it Bursting Like a hot air balloon In March 1885 Blavatsky left India never to return Boarding a ship bound for Naples On the voyage, she worked on her secret doctrine, a project much like the earlier Isis Unveiled that would go on to consume much of the final years of her life. She left in such a hurry that she left her glasses behind.
3: And she never went back.
2: In India, yeah. Wow. And she never went back. So she never saw those glasses again. I can't say that for sure. They may have mailed, mailed them to her.
3: Uh, <laughs> India said, "Here you go." <laughs> yeah,
2: who knows? Uh, either way, she could apparently write without them. So she suffered attacks of <laughs> rheumatism.
0: Was she lying about the glasses
1: too? <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> she had a, she had second she had second sight. Uh, what? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. She oh. maybe she just was. What, nearsighted or farsighted? Which one is when you could probably write? If you're nearsighted. Nearsighted. Nearsighted, you can see see near, right?
1: Oh, Oh, God. We're way (laughs) off the mark here. Yes, we are.
2: She suffered attacks of rheumatism and decided not to linger in Italy, but to continue on to Bavaria. Blavatsky had been frequently ill in India and suffered from chronic kidney pain that made it difficult for her to walk.
3: Wow. That sucks. I know that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so
2: she had the, remember, Bright's disease we mentioned a couple episodes back in India. She had kidney issues throughout her life, and that's probably really what brought her down in the end. So, in Würzburg, the president of Germany's branch of the Theosophical Society, Dr. William Hubeschleiden, visited her. He sounds fancy, One more doesn't time? he? Dr. William Hubeschleiden.
1: Mmm, I like it. It rolls off
2: the <laughs> <laughs> he, he observed that Blavatsky had not brought many books along with her, and that she wrote as if she were copying from a book in front of her, even though no book was there.
3: Oh, some automatic writing?
2: Perhaps. Yeah,
4: sounds like automatic oh. writing to me. Hmm.
2: She quoted, sometimes at length, from books she had no direct access to, and for the most part, the quotes turned out to be accurate, when her various assistants went to double-check her citations. That would be a really handy skill. He also noticed, Dr. Huber-Schleiden, that the blue pencil marks associated with Kut Humi were all over her manuscript, and he received a certification from Master Moria indicating that Moria was dictating at least some part of the book to Blavatsky. There's some discrepancy about the master's involvement. Some scholars believe that Blavatsky and her masters, as we mentioned in the last episode, had gone their separate ways, by the writing of the secret doctrine, and that the book was a product of Blavatsky's own genius. Blavatsky indicated that the book was being dictated to her, at least in part, but also that she had very intermittent contact with the masters now, so she's sort of contradicting herself. So she's saying she doesn't contact the masters as much. She's also spending her time writing this thousand-page book.
1: That's: exposing Through their that, influence.
2: Right? It's, it's laying out her most complex occult theories, yeah, which theoretically come from them.
1: Mm.
2: Having relocated to Ostend in Belgium, she found herself dissatisfied with the quality of the local ink there and began manufacturing and selling her own.
3: That is first world, right? first, first world. First world problems. But <laughs>
2: well, what a character, right? Yeah. She's like, this ink is not to my standard.
4: I shall create my own ink.
2: <laughs>
4: they have better ink in India, maybe? India ink. <laughs> that's is that a funny? thing? That that's, is a thing, <laughs> That's yeah. a cheap joke. What,
2: what I don't that? think Wait. it is. James had no idea.
3: Wait, you didn't? Nope. Yeah. Didn't know. That's like what most artists, if they do ink, they use like India ink.
4: Oh, Oh, so that maybe she she was used to Indian ink and then she came back and she was like, your ink sucks. I'm going (laughs) to open up my own ink store. So uh, when a woman
0: came... I'm going back to India.
4: (laughs) No, she can't do that. she can't go back. She can't do that. The climate,
2: I think, was bad for her condition. Anyway, when a woman came begging at the door, Blavatsky apparently gave the ink factory she'd made, little, you know, homemade ink factory, away to her... Figuring that the ink factory would be enough to sustain the woman. Now she has a means of making ink, and she can sell it, and now she can get ahead.
1: Wow, what a nice lady. Isn't she? Feminism. Feminist icon.
2: <laughs> but, but Yeah, she really is.
1: Yeah.
2: The London Lodge of the Theosophical Society fell into conflict because A.P. Sinnett, who we know from a couple of episodes ago writing The Occult World, um, about, who, which was about Blavatsky's phenomenon, in India, he wanted the society to be limited to uh, society. Like, upper-class people.
3: Oh. <laughs>
2: so we wanted the Theosophical Society to be limited to London Society. Uh,
1: that's oh, that's not fair.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm poor. Why I, you I want to do this? I want to be part of the cult. <laughs> you
2: want to be a member? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <Senate>. it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, the younger members, like Savannah, wanted to keep the Theosophical Society open to the masses.
3: Nice.
1: Like yeah. Savannah. That's me.
2: (laughs) So, on moving to London in spring 1887, Blavatsky sided with the younger members. Ah, Ah, for
1: once an old person sides with the younger people. She likes the masses. How old was she at this point?
2: Uh, She's in her late 50s.
3: Oh, no, it's not
1: that old. Uh, I feel bad for saying old. Or mid-50s. I mean, I guess
2: at the
3: time it was (laughs) a little old, yeah.
2: So together they formed the Blavatsky Lodge, out of which they began to publish the magazine Lucifer.
3: Oh,
2: uh, We're going to figure out why they chose the name Lucifer later. Uh, the magazine was banned by the Anglican Church.
3: Well, that seems right. Uh,
2: but was a... Fa- <laughs> those Anglicans. Always banned in our various Satan-themed they magazines. They even read it, like... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but it was a fascinating vehicle for theosophical opinions. Despite Blavatsky's deep involvement, it published the novel The Talking Image of ur that satirized major theosophists, including Blavatsky herself.
3: Uh-ruh,
7: uh-ruh, uh-ruh, talking uh-ruh, image of
2: Arrur. Yeah.
3: Who's
2: that? It yeah. was a satirical novel about the Theosophical Society, but they published it, and they were the Theosophical Society. So then is brilliant. it satire yeah. anymore? What?
1: Everybody <laughs> talked
3: to
2: once.
3: i <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, Well, one at a can... time.
2: What do you have to say <laughs> about this?
3: Is it satire if they... Published a book of satire about themselves.
2: Right, they have a sense of humor about themselves. Yeah, the, oh. it's called "Getting Ahead of It." Let <laughs> you know
4: they're getting out in front.
2: They're owning the joke. Yeah. yeah. After arriving in England, uh, Blavatsky turned over her manuscript for The Secret Doctrine to a guy named Bertram Kitely and his wife, and they edited the document. They found the manuscript to be a mess as far as organization, which is how I found <laughs> Isis Unveiled, what? the first book to be in its final version.
3: How long did it take her to finish writing
2: it? Years. Took a couple years. Mm-hmm. Or more than a couple years, actually. Yeah. How long was uh, and that? And she's voyage? still not done yet. Oh,
4: she just started it on her voyage. She didn't write the whole thing. Right. So okay. she's
2: been in process. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, So they set out to put the the work together into something readable, and it's published in two volumes in November and December of 1888. So you see the, the length of the process. She continued writing and publishing, including a book called The Voice of Silence, a favorite among our podcasters here.
4: Yeah, we talked about it before. But you remember nothing about it. I, I uh, personally, I don't. But I always store my memory inside of Olivia, and she, she remembers all my stuff for me. Yeah, how's that, that
3: sounds like some government DNA receptor. So the Voice of
2: Silence stuff. is a translation of a Tibetan text, uh, which the Dalai Lama credited as being. Fairly persuasive. Does that sound familiar?
3: Then I'm on board.
2: Uh, And she moved into the home of her new acolyte and the future leader of the Society Annie Besant. On the 27th of April, 1891, Blavatsky came down with influenza. An epidemic had recently struck the area. She had had so many health scares that although her prognosis grew dimmer by the day, her doctors were unwilling to say whether she would live or not.
1: Why were they unwilling to say? Is that a thing in the medical community? Well,
2: because she'd been so close to death so many times and they kept saying she's going to die and being wrong about it. Oh. That they quit saying she was going to die.
1: (laughs) That's interesting.
2: Yeah. So on the 8th of May, she finally did pass, remaining, in the words of the nurse attending her, conscious to the very end.
4: Wow.
3: Oh.
2: Yeah, wild. I don't even know if we would want that to happen Yeah, that
3: sounds bad.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she was 59 years old. She had left the world a body of work that would go on to reshape the face of occultism, if not Western culture on the whole. Uh, We have devoted four episodes so far to her for a reason she is highly influential and in large part it's because of this book we're about to spend a lot of time on she brought hindu and buddhist concepts about the origins of life and the fate of the soul to us in the west and she helped to popularize esoteric theories about atlantis Mm -hmm. a coming new age of spiritual enlightenment this should sound familiar Becomes the New Age movement of the 1960s and into the 80s, 90s. And the power of yogic spiritual practice. Oh, boy. This is everywhere now, right? What what would
3: we do?
0: I had a question real quick. Yep. So, you know how she, all her performances, she said about three-fourths of it was a lie. What about the book? Like, does she just put only the truth, like, in the book she's written? Or is is she saying that some of it's kind of exaggerated to attract more attention?
2: You're gonna to have to wait till the end of the second part of this, Shannon, for me to answer that <laughs> I question. I feel like I went through that. I feel
5: like, <laughs> I feel I feel like, I like you do a lot. Of- yeah,
2: you usually skip ahead a little bit, but now you've skipped the entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> To my analysis of what I think Blavatsky's up to here. Sorry, okay. Uh But I will say that the, as we wade into The Secret Doctrine that she is making a reasoned case for all the theories she's putting out, and many of them do bear out as a sort of blend of Western occultism and Hindu ideas. So you can see all the pieces fitting together. So there's no faking in that way, or sort of there's no way to fake. It's just a kind of creative scholarship in a way.
3: There's a lot of history that yeah. isn't like history you can deny that she like weaves through that's my understanding It's like a manifesto
2: in a way yeah, yeah. Okay. it has that quality so it can't really be a lie in that sense
1: Awesome
2: Okay so um, she's introducing all these ideas to a world remember where science is ascendant Right, Darwin is sort of taking over, and and all these scientists are pushing religion out of the marketplace of ideas, Mm -hmm. and people are hungry for alternatives to traditional religious practices. So, Blavatsky's really popular in her time, but her influence is felt because of the. She's sort of a woman of her moment.
3: Oh, I love that—a woman of her moment. Yeah. You
4: should write it down. We should all strive to be such a woman.
2: Uh, So, uh, she provides an important part of the groundwork for the world of alternative religions that's going to blossom into full bloom. The Secret Doctrine cites occult sources and philosophers from across cultures and time periods. She cites Plato, Aristotle, Spinoza. Leibniz, the Christian Gnostics, Jewish Kabbalists, Chinese Tradition, and Japanese Shinto.
3: That's a lot. That's like the whole globe. That's most of it.
2: She also refers to the most current and influential scientific minds of the day. Darwin, Crookes, Tyndall, Wallace, and on and on. Her most authoritative sources are Indian texts. The Vedas, the Puranas, the Upanishads, and the Mahabharata. Which are all enormous, complicated mythological works. And
4: super old. Also
2: super old, yes. (laughs) Yes. Unlike Darwin at this time, who is still also kind of pretty old. One of Blavatsky's greatest contributions to the study and practice of occultism is the synthesis of these Eastern and Western ideas, and her greatest achievement to that end is the book we're about to discuss, composed in the last year of her life. The central ideas of the secret doctrine are Indian, but she justifies them by comparing them to Western Gnostic, Kabbalistic, philosophical, and scientific theories. But the secret doctrine is just not a work of comparative religion. It is an original text contributing wildly inventive new concepts to the occult world that are not found in Indian or Western belief systems. Am I selling you on this yet? Yeah. I'm sold. The source for these new concepts is, according to Blavatsky, and here Shannon is where things get a little, you know, in the mist, the secret book of Zion.
4: Zion? Zion. Zion. Wait,
1: literally like D-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z
4: Yan. Mm. dz
1: This is
2: the hidden key to the Hindu Upanishads, according to her. So this is, uh, there were a lot of keys to the Bible in the 19th century. Victoria Woodall had one, and and I think Mary Baker Eddy said she had one.
3: I wish I had one.
2: Key to the scriptures. So this is a key to the Hindu scriptures
3: Mm.
2: that, like, gives you the secret meaning of them. So, both Buddhists and Hindus believe in reincarnation, the law of karma, and often share opinions about the meaning of life and the nature of the cosmos. But the Buddha believed that it was possible to achieve enlightenment, a release from the reincarnating reincarnating cycle of rebirths for any human in this life. The Hindus believed in an extensively tiered hierarchy and that only those at the top of the ladder could hope to be enlightened. Does this sound familiar? Yes. In other words, the Buddha wanted to bypass the hierarchy. Blavatsky believed that the Buddha achieved this in part by disseminating secret knowledge, that had been jealously guarded by the Brahmin priests at the top of the hierarchy. So the Buddha sort of like broke in, got their secret knowledge, and blew up their spot. Nice. Did I use that properly?
4: Yeah. You said blew up their spot in the proper context.
2: Nice. Is that a thing? Blowing up spots? If you're the Buddha, it is.
3: (laughs) Ah,
1: gotcha. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, So (laughs) according to Blavatsky, the Buddha... uh, uh, attempted to disseminate the knowledge of the jealous Brahmins. And so they went back to the official Upanishad texts. And sneaky little guys. They shortened the original Upanishads. Yeah, the Brahmins did. Not the Buddha. He's blowing up spots and taking names. (laughs) But the Brahmins are sneaking around. Because it's 500 BCE, right? And everything's written on like parchment and stuff. And only a few people can read. Right. And they're going back to them parchments. And they're taking pieces out of them to conceal their secrets again by distorting the meaning of the Upanishads to contradict the Buddha's revelations. So the Buddha comes out and he's like, these are the secret this is the secret meaning of the Upanishads. Remember, this is essentially what Blavatsky's saying she has. And the Brahmins are like, oh well, guess what? If we change the Upanishads,
3: <laughs> sucks for you. <laughs> yeah, and you're never
2: gonna know this. So Blavatsky's secret doctrine is the master key, the book of Zayan, that pulls together these two pieces. So we have the Buddha's revelations, which don't make any sense anymore. Because the Upanishads have been changed, and Blavatsky's Master Key reveals what those changes are, which puts the Buddha's theories back into their proper context, and now we know the occult secrets of Buddhism.
0: So they were trying to make the Buddha appear like he was making things up.
2: So they wanted, yeah, they wanted to. Well, they wanted to conceal their Brahman secrets again by changing the original text. Well, let's just do a comparison. So let's imagine that, like. I uh, go to the, I don't know. Supermarket.
3: <laughs> I don't think that applies here.
2: <laughs> no. The library? Uh, let's say the book of Genesis, because we are going to talk about the book of Genesis today. And uh, I'm like, okay, I have had this secret revelation that the snake in Genesis is God.
1: Oh, You just flipped the script right there.
2: <laughs> but... Then James, Brahmin priest James, goes to the Book of Genesis and removes all references to the snake. Good luck with that, Rob. Right. So now I'm like, the snake is God, and you guys are like, what? Snake? What snake? What I don't know what you're talking, talking about, about Rob. Right? Okay. But
0: why would they take that away?
2: Because the book is blowing the up their spot. Yeah. I have. I'm revealing secrets to you, masses. You dumb masses. That uh, James doesn't want you to know.
4: Yeah, I have power because I can read and I have the script. I have the scripture. If, right. if he if he tries to disseminate. So That's they didn't some, want I, I masses to know. They, they didn't, didn't want you to know because,
2: because you need to go to, James is your priest. Yeah. And if I give you all James's secrets, you don't need him anymore.
0: Why are you going oh. to church? So it takes away the power from all the Brahmins right. yes. right, if right, everyone right. has the knowledge. So
2: James is going back and editing out all the snakes. So I look silly when I say the snake is this, that, or the oh. other thing. And you're like, there are no mm. snakes, man.
3: And Blavatsky is getting all of these now secrets that are being revealed from her Mahatmas.
2: Blavatsky got the snakes. She got the book of Zion, which is full of all the snakes that James yeah. pulled out of the holy book.
3: But then, like,
0: if
2: they're the deleted saying... Scenes. The deleted scenes, which now yeah. help us understand the Buddha's teachings in a whole new light, and the secrets are all revealed to us. The Secret Doctrine is, as I said, over a thousand pages long. It's divided into two books, much like Isis Unveiled. These books are meant to tell the story of the creation of the universe, part one, the earth and humanity up to the present day. The first book is devoted to cosmogenesis, the creation of the universe, and the earth. The second book turns to the question of... Anthropogenesis, the creation of humanity and our development to the present day. These yeah, are the word parts. You can impress your friends with these words. Anthro. Pogenesis.
4: Anthropogenesis.
2: Part one. Cosmogenesis.
3: <laughs>
2: Neil
4: deGrasse Tyson. Well, <laughs> oh, I don't what? think we can mention his name <laughs> anymore. TM.
3: Yeah. Do we just Do we trademark? We just trademark? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Do we
3: just trademark
4: My bad guys.
2: The first thing we need to internalize to understand Blavatsky's system is that the space and the unconscious, the seemingly empty or contentless states of being, are the true reality. So outer space, right, where there's no stuff, it's just the void. And then subconscious space, where we don't know what's in there. That's that's the real thing. Consciousness and stuff is sort of the illusion. The veil of maya. Yeah. All the stuff that goes to make up our universe and our personalities uh, makes us feel like the universe outside of ourselves is divided into parts and that we ourselves are separate from the universe and from each other.
4: Tis an illusion.
2: Tis. We all come from the same unity and remain a part of that unity. We are the one, the absolute, the all. Blavatsky calls the return to that state of unity and unconsciousness. Uh, the absolute, itself being non being, which is real being.
3: That's where David Icke steals it from the oneness and the idea that we are all.
2: Yeah, when you were doing that episode, I was thinking, I mentioned I her a couple times. I'm aware. Yeah, he, where he I think grabbed he it, plagiarized but... a whole oh, bunch of. Oh, a lot. Of
3: <laughs> yeah. Did he, <laughs> does he mention her?
4: <laughs> he does, yeah. Oh, well, that's all right. Low key, but yeah. yeah Gotta cite your sources, kids. That's correct. Especially
3: when he talks about Lemuria and Atlantis. <laughs>
2: Our universe and our God is one of infinite universes that expand and contract... Oh, sorry, this is going to hurt some of you. Woo! Our universe and our God is one of infinite universes that expand and contract into undifferentiated space and out of undifferentiated space over and over again. We can imagine existence breathing. It condenses into a single unity and then expands out into the multiverse of beings that we understand as our universe. Then it contracts again and expands again over and over with each cycle taking trillions of years. Each of these contractions is an age of Brahma which is the seventh part of 311 oh boy it's like a slinky. Let's just say 4.32 billion years
3: I mean I yeah okay All
4: right.
2: (laughs) You're just good with
4: that. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm
1: okay with that. I don't have any proof to dispute it. So. Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, this is an Eastern concept for sure. The, in the West, we like that the universe is 6,000 years old and that God made us and we're special and we're at the center of everything.
3: And there's What's no evolution?
2: Yeah, that goes, I mean, that's how we like to see things. But in, in the East, uh, there's a sort of comfort in the smallness of the individual, mm. right? We're yeah. sort of big in the West because the universe is such a condensed space of time and we're in the middle of it and god is all about us all the time and putting us in gardens and stuff but in (laughs) hinduism and buddhism we are just this speck in this constantly unfolding billions years long universe that will blink out of existence completely before it comes back again
1: well and at the end of that well well, i guess not religion, but when you reach enlightenment, you just become one with it. Like, you aren't yourself You anymore. merge.
2: Well, we'll talk about there that. There is no self. That's coming. We're going to talk about what Blavatsky feels about okay. that. Okay, so the expansion, the creation of the universe out of the contracted unity of all beings, with, it begins with a cosmic thought. Spirit, in the form of the divine thought of the desire for life, manifests the universe. So spirit thinks, I would like there to be life. And so we become. The divine thought is the absolute and the eternal manifested as a secondary cause. So the real being of unconscious space has a conscious thought. So there's this vast emptiness that thinks a thing.
3: Gnosticism, sort of.
2: In a way, yeah. Okay. Tracing similar paths when you're interested in that origin of the universe. Okay. And this thought is separate from the unconscious absolute, unity. So the unity has a thought that then becomes a separate thing from itself and Mm -hmm. is outside of itself. This divine thought is the individual God with a capital G, or light of this particular universe emanating from the primordial God, which is the subconscious God. So there's subconscious God that encompasses us, and that subconscious God thinks conscious God. And then we have the two aspects of deity
3: that's like Sophia like in Gnosticism like I was talking about in the reptilians episode that's what I was trying to explain when I was talking about the difference between like a god and like a not like an event but like a like what you're saying
4: phenomenon you
3: know, not like what you're kind of saying like it comes it's an
2: action yeah it comes with yeah, an action don't, yeah it's hard to so the differentiated universe comes from this god and is also of this god speaking of both really
5: and the deity being absolute must be omnipresent, hence not an atom, but contains it within itself. The roots, the trunk, and its many branches are three distinct objects, yet they are one tree.
2: Faux hat. Faux hat. Not like F-A-N-E. Faux hat. Is the force through which the universe does the work of coming into being. Atoms emerge from the Eternal Mother and are transformed into their material state and distributed throughout
4: the universe. Blavatsky personalizes Fohat as he. Is Fohat uh, Blavatsky original, or does she draw this from somewhere else? I can't say exactly. Okay. uh,
2: But she's the only one to define it in this way. He is the word made flesh, the thought of the creator made manifest in the objective universe. So Mother Mother God creates Fohat, Fohat begins to form material stuff. It's familiar. Fohat takes the immaterial thought, transforms it into something tangible. He's also the solar energy and electrical energy running through the universe, organizing and driving the universe's various forces and entities. So it's not just that Fohat creates, but remains to power the universe. It's the force. But in a more literal way, yeah. Yeah. Because it's actually electricity and solar power. So if like Luke Skywalker's lightsaber had a little solar panel on it, yes. Cool. (laughs) The forces of nature, light, heat, electricity, are conjured by the great intelligence hidden behind the veil and emerge from the occult power of Fohat. So we've got great deity hidden and then present deity. When mm-hmm. energy seems to run down or burn off, it is actually dropping out of our terrestrial universe and back into the hidden occult universe uh, to rest until the time when it must reemerge. So when we see a fire die out, it's, that energy is just dropping behind the occult veil. Oh.
3: So like a spirit? Well, what do well, you mean by Well, it's not a personalized
2: spirit. It's I guess spirit I meant like world. a
3: spirit world. That's what yeah. I was asking.
2: Yeah, yeah, in a way, okay. in a way. I mean, it's not necessarily person. The fire is not personalized. It's not a... Yeah, Spirit. I just meant. But there's this realm of energy yeah. that's invisible that we're separated from by this veil, and that when we draw our energy, from... yes, yeah. when okay. we drop yeah. the... below that, when the energy runs off, uh, so an individual human can connect with the current of fohat to feel his or her union with the absolute. So we can connect back to mom that way.
5: Fohat, in his capacity of divine love, the electric power of affinity and sympathy, is shown allegorically as trying to bring the pure spirit, the ray, inseparable from the one absolute into union with the soul, the two constituting in man, the monad, and in nature, the first link between the ever unconditioned and manifested.
2: There are two varieties of celestial beings. Entities manifested on the hidden occult side of the universe who interact with humans. The planetary spirits build or rebuild the universe after each cycle ends, and they are the agents of karma, and they protect humankind. The Lepika are the judges on the death side of the life cycle, determining who passes into union with the one absolute and who gets kicked back down for more lifetimes.
3: Oh, I didn't know you didn't just get in in this scenario. I thought everyone... Oh
2: well, I mean, they're sort of personalized beings, but Blavatsky's sort of fuzzy about how personalized they are. They may just be governing forces, mm. you know, like magnetism or gravity. Yeah. Um. So these beings, uh, she personalizes, but she also says they don't have a sense of ego. They are individualized beings, but they can only act in accord with the laws of the universe.
4: They just have functions that they function.
2: Yeah, they're functionaries of karma, basically.
1: So is. Life then considered a punishment in a way because you know you like once you die, you either get to become one or you go back to life.
2: Uh, well, in a Buddhist sense, life is suffering.
1: Well, life is suffering for a lot of people, too, well, right, I But uh, I mean, uh,
2: <laughs> you get liberated from that when you connect with the one with the all. And, and Hindus sort of have the same idea, it just mm. happens in a different way. Uh, so I, I guess you could think about life as, but. It's not punishment because there is no real strong concept of punishment. It's more like we are a manifestation that had to become materialized and also has have to return to spirit. Okay. Just like all the energy. Yeah. In the world. It's not. It's not that this is hell. This is just the material manifestation of God that must go back to God. Okay. Eventually.
4: Yeah. We're all headed there at some point. But this is kind of like high school, where like everybody agrees this is worse off than like the rest of. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, this oh, will be much better. Life. But summer's going to kick ass <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: right, We're all just waiting for summer. Yeah. This is the spring semester So the creation of humanity is a dual action, getting to now how we get to humans. There are spirits or angels descending toward the material world. We're sort of already we, we talked about this in a way and matter rising up from the lowest orders of being toward the spirit. And these meet in the middle, and the union of matter and spirit takes place uniquely in the human being. So there are these spirits who have formed the matter, and the matter's trying to rise back up to Mother God, and then there's the spirits descending from Mother God that connect with the matter, and boom, we have humans. Mm -hmm. So we are both matter rising up from the primordial material, and we're spirit descending from the primordial God.
3: So does that mean that there's
5: part of God in all of us?
2: Absolutely, says Blavatsky. There is indeed.
5: The occult doctrine teaches that while the monad is cycling downward into matter, these very Elohim or Petrus, the lower Cohens, are evolving paripasu with it on a higher and more spiritual plane, descending also relatively into matter on their own plane of consciousness, when after having reached a certain point, they will meet the incarnating senseless monad, encased in the lowest matter and blending the two potencies spirit and matter. The union will produce the terrestrial symbol of the heavenly man in space, Perfect man.
2: Humanity is the monad descended into matter, rising to the level where it assumes the shape of the angels. But we remain incomplete in two important senses. First, we must continue to strive for nirvana, our union of ourselves with the one, what Bobotsky calls man's quest, to sacrifice himself to himself in order to redeem all creatures, to resurrect from the many into the one life. That's nice, isn't it?
3: It's a good thought. <laughs>
2: <laughs> James is making a face at me.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, why does it matter what we do here if the nirvana is... I mean, is there a relationship between our actions here on the material plane and, and what happened? Well, that's the... what
3: I'm asking with the judgment thing, sort of. like I
4: don't...
2: Yes. So your spirit is striving to return to Mother God, Father God, you know. Um, and your material aspect holds that back so they're sort of wrestling with each other Mm. so as your spirit becomes elevated you begin to detach from the material and you actually begin to elevate all of being toward ascendance because you have to go in order for everything else to go you bring up the earth with you does that make sense it it's hard for my
4: Western brain to grasp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: This is all kind of mind blowing. It's yeah. hard to. I'm like,
4: what's my motivation? Do I get punished here? Like, what's well, the you video? kind of <laughs> get
2: punished, but you're not really being evil. You're just being material. Right. You're be- remaining committed and connected to the material world, which is natural. You, you are partially that. So you'll be reincarnated because of that connection. But once you're reincarnated, every reincarnation is an effort to begin to separate that bond so that you will spiritualize and return to the one unity with God.
0: That's where the different levels come from, right? Yes. Don't you start off with like, an anim- like,
1: a, like a
0: small... With Hinduism?
2: Right. Yeah. And you can move up and down. Yeah. If you have a life where you're more material, you might move down. If you have one where you're more spiritual, you might move up. But over time, you'll reach a point where you become connected to the one. So
0: it's not really... A Your behavior is good or bad, it's based on how spiritual you are. You can expedite it. (laughs) In a
2: Blavatsky sense, yes, but good and bad, for Blavatsky, comes down to your commitment to your spiritual development. And there are arguments to be made that if you are committed to your spiritual development, then the things that we recognize as standard morality, you'll more or less line up with. Very interesting, Rob.
1: (laughs) Tell me more. This is a lot...
2: So we redeem all creatures because all creatures are on this evolutionary path and must achieve the same union with the one. By indulging our inner impulse to seek that union with God, we are facilitating the divine order of things which pulls all matter back up into spirit. Yeah? Yeah. Significantly, Blavatsky speaks in terms of all creatures. What she really means is all matter. Every atom contains consciousness oh this is like bringing together so many episodes now right, talking fruit that is yes that is working its way up toward a union with the absolute all of being everything that exists must eventually spiritualize and return to
4: god bananas <laughs> including bananas
5: no that was an explanation <laughs> Nor is the individuality, nor even the essence of personality, if any be left behind, lost because reabsorbed. For however limitless from a human standpoint, the paranormonic state it has yet a limit in eternity. Once reached, the same monad will reemerge therefrom as a still higher being on a far higher plane to recommence its cycle of perfected activity. The human mind cannot, in its present stage of development, transcend, scarcely reach this plane of thought. It totters here on the brink of incomprehensible absoluteness and eternity. She says this is how an infant might describe life after
2: birth. All the infant knows is the womb. Let's say I send a telepathic message to my unborn baby. What's life, I ask? Warmth, fluid, muffled sounds, darkness, right? This is what the infant would respond. What happens when you leave that place, I ask the unborn baby. The baby doesn't know. There is only non-being outside of the womb. Plato cavings your yeah. kind of caving
3: your baby. Allegory kind
2: of, but not exactly. <laughs> it, what Blavatsky's saying is that actually non-being is reality. We think about our being as the only thing that's real, okay. and non-being as unreal. But uh. the baby metaphor shows us that non-being is is living, right? When the baby leaves the womb, for the baby's purposes, existence ends, but then the baby becomes alive. Do you see? Mm, So it's a sort of reverse of the way we think about it. Well, the baby, there's no there's non-being in the womb. No, no, actually, for the baby, the baby thinks the womb is the whole picture.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm. Uh, So I ask myself, what's it like to be unified with the absolute unconsciousness of space? Sounds like non-being. But I'm wrong about that. It's a non-being that is real being. I'm living in my own womb, waiting to be born to something closer to reality.
3: Oh, I, I think I, okay. It's like being oh. aware.
2: Yeah, you, you, get, you open your eyes, finally. Just pure awareness. Like a baby opens its eyes when it enters the world.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this is... when we, be leave we just being, took a journey. Yeah. Yeah.
2: When we leave this life, we'll open our eyes to non being and it will be the same reality that a baby opens its eyes to when it's born. I can't wait. Wait.
4: Oh, I will I will wait.
2: <laughs> life as we know it in the material world is an illusion, but it's more life than life in the womb. Let's try another example. All right. I'm ready. Yeah, this I might, need this another might make one. it worse. I don't know. Oh, okay. Alright. <laughs> okay, so Blavats- this is another Blavatsky's examples. These are both Blavatsky examples that I'm sort of thinking through for us. She says hydrogen and oxygen oh, no. Here together. We go. water. Let's imagine that there's some hydrogen and oxygen molecules just hanging out destined to become water. If we ask the hydrogen gas molecules what it would be like to be combined with oxygen molecules and to become liquid, they'd say that the existence they've known, their identity as both hydrogen and gas, would cease to be. They would experience non-being. They're not themselves anymore. Just
4: because they don't know.
2: Because they don't know that they will become water. They think of themselves as this thing. I'm hydrogen gas man hanging out. And if I combine with oxygen gas man, then I won't be me anymore. I'll be this liquid thing.
5: But
2: But that's the real thing. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Huh.
2: In fact, I mean, we can think about this in another way. Hydrogen and oxygen are invisible.
3: That one was pretty good, actually. Well, Blavatsky likes this
2: one because they're invisible. The gases are invisible, but water's visible. So only through their combination do they enter the world in any way we can grasp and understand them. That's us leaving the world of illusion and entering non-being, space, and unconsciousness. I love it. Yeah,
1: I'm kind of into this, too. This is really neat.
2: We're all converting to Blavatskyism. Okay. So the second sense of this is that we, humanity, on the whole, are part of a seven-stage evolutionary scheme. This is what Olivia's been looking forward to. Okay, now
3: we're in here. I'm here. Hi. (laughs) Hello. Hey, Olivia.
2: Hi. So... So the, the sort of broad picture is that we're supposed to work our way into this non-being and awaken to our non-being from what we call being. The second sense of this is that we have to move through these seven stages.
3: Okay, this as makes a species. sense with what i
2: So not just me, I don't have to move through seven stages, but all of us together over eons have to move through seven stages. You
4: know I'm going to mess this up for all of us, right?
2: I look forward to it. (laughs) Okay, so the whole species is working toward this higher state of awakening, a prototype for what would come to be called the 20th century's new age. We are currently in the fourth age in which physical humanity has reached a state of perfection, as you can tell by how attractive we all are. In the next (laughs) fifth stage, we will begin to work towards spiritual perfection and union.
3: We're gonna be on that one for a hot second. (laughs) So that's
2: the new age. The dawning new age is the spiritual age as we complete the physical age.
5: The fiery wind is the incandescent cosmic dust which only follows magnetically as the iron filings follow the magnet, the directing thought of the creative forces. Yet this cosmic dust is something more. For every atom in the universe has a potentiality of self-consciousness in it, and is, like the monads of Leibniz, a universe in itself, and for itself, it is an atom and an angel. Do you
4: think the philosophy would say about, like, um, the, the way that we're, we're not really interacting with things physically so much like, it's all just like, uh, what's it called? Digital? Yeah, but like, just ideas, subjective nonsense, like watching a show (laughs) or like, it's just fiction, it's just fiction. Or she might consider this a
2: detachment from material reality, I'm not sure. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean,
4: ultimately, inevitably, we shall be elevated. So we're getting, we're training, we're getting our evolutionary versions of ourselves ready for more spiritual kind of... It's possible. Maybe. It's possible, although I don't think the iPhone's helping.
3: It can't be helping.
0: Though I
2: do appreciate everyone who listens to our podcast on their iPhone. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, what's the final stage of like Is that like yeah, being enlightened? Stage. So, once you're enlightened, then, then you you'll... enter
2: that non being okay. as then, an individual. But the whole species is going to go through this process as well, is what we're talking about. But then it'll repeat. Well, I mean, in like four billion years. Right. But right now, in our eon, in our era,
4: The slinky is unfurled.
2: Yes, we're pulling it back together. Okay, so that brings us to anthropogenesis.
3: Anthropo... I was going to sing it, but I don't think I can even say it.
2: Let's get to the peoples. Yeah. Okay, so we've covered the creation of the universe from God's first thought of creation. So we're going to turn now, as we're saying, to the second book. So let's put a finer point on the lesson from the first book. Each of us is what Blavatsky calls, after Spinoza, a spiritual monad descended from the absolute or god. That monad, we've each got a little monad, has passed, not a gonad, but a monad. Mine hurts. Has passed upward through mineral, vegetable, and animal forms, in that order, finally reaching a point when it could unify with an individualized spirit us. The humanized monad then has uh, to go its way up through a series of human reincarnations, gradually getting closer and closer to the spirit and further and further from the material. Sort of what we've been plowing through all along, kind of pull, pull us together. This, for us, is the struggle. Blavatsky compares it to the Greek story of Prometheus. Prometheus is the hero who stole fire, a symbol for the light of knowledge from the gods, awakening humankind's intellect. To punish Prometheus, Zeus had him chained up in Hades, where vultures continually peck at his innards, which regrow to be pecked out again. Gross. (laughs) That is until Heracles arrives to rescue him. Zeus, who Blavatsky calls a sensual Olympic tyrant.
1: (laughs) Accurate.
2: Zing. Represents humankind's lower passions, our animal urges, with his jealousy and anger, most importantly, his drive to have sex with beings, mortal-immortal, semi-divine, and I don't know. Benign. All of them. (laughs) Semi-divine and benign. We, we are Prometheus, seeking a spiritual light. We are Prometheus. But our lower (laughs) Zeusian passions chain us down. So see, Zeus is chaining Prometheus, Prometheus to the rock.
6: Oh.
2: And we can only be liberated when we overcome our animal passions, our Zeusian-ness, and then eliminate them completely. Mm-hmm. I love her mythological interpretations.
3: <laughs> I mean, as a pagan, I'm not, like, that makes sense.
2: You're good? Yeah. Signing off on this one? Yeah. Cool. Ultimately, <laughs> the entire species... Stamp of approval. Pagan approval Like
0: Olivia's face on a sticker. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Ultimately, the entire species is destined to achieve this liberation. There are seven root races of humanity proceeding chronologically across time, and we're in the fifth. Each of those seven have seven sub races, which in turn have seven family races. By the seventh sub race of the seventh root race, we will have all moved beyond our commitment to a physical existence and be all or nearly completely spiritualized.
4: What does she mean by race?
2: Um, it's not Be race careful, Rob. in the sense. Well, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm feeling comfortable okay, answering okay, this okay. question. It's not like black, white, uh, Asian. It's sp- not what we mean by
4: race no. in modern day culture.
2: Because all of those races are really part of the same species race. And we will undergo evolutions of that whole race together, which transform us into the next thing.
3: So, like. Right, that like some of like the OG ones like couldn't even like sex wasn't a thing yet
2: Uh, with the Lumarians, but Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk about adepts for a little while. Adepts, guiding us along this path are the adepts, also known as the Serpents of Wisdom, the Cabareem. Or the
4: Manus. Why do they get so many cool names? Because they're the adepts. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> uh, these
2: aren't really serpents, but men. So they Aww. never really mean actual snakes, or
4: reptilians for that matter. Uh,
3: you're getting closer to reptilians. Right, but she but does not mean that.
4: <laughs> Humans love to name their groups like after animals. Have you noticed that? Yeah. yeah. So in, our in thing. Our sports teams. We and, were
3: naming yeah. them in the Bible. And we yeah. Okay. <laughs> so
2: these men are responsible for endowing humanity with knowledge, much like Prometheus, and inspiring humanity on our quest for enlightenment. Knowledge is both a temptation away from the spiritual and an awakening onto the existence of the spiritual, the awareness of both black and white magic. Mm-hmm. Do you see? So black magic tempting us away, white magic tempting us toward the spirit. Blavatsky makes the point many times that the serpent in the Garden of Eden, here we go, is not Satan tempting, but rather God endowing the earthborn with the knowledge required to begin to liberate themselves from the cycle of rebirths in the material world. All cultures, except the Christians, have reverenced the serpent as a symbol of wisdom. Think of Quetzalcoatl for the Aztecs or the Chinese dragon, right? Or even... All over the place, these serpents. Even Jesus of Nazareth used the snake as a symbol for wisdom, warning his disciples in the book of Matthew, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as wise as snakes and as innocent as doves. Hmm so little have the first christians
5: who despoiled the jews of their bible understood the first four chapters of genesis in their esoteric meaning that they never perceived that not only was no sin intended in this disobedience but that actually the serpent was the lord god himself who as the ophis, the logos or bearer of divine creative wisdom taught mankind to become creators in their turn
2: at the dawn of humanity these serpents were creator gods who incarnated as the first humans in order to create so that the various monads of the earth could be brought upward out of materiality toward the absolute spirit. In doing so, they committed themselves to serving the monads of the earth through our collective enlightenment at the end of the seventh cycle. So they're going to hang out. They created us and they're going to chill until we all achieve enlightenment. Where are they at? Uh, I'll tell you. Near the end of the third root race, they became divine kings, James, leading the people directly. During the fourth cataclysms uh, or floods that wiped out humanity, which are not punishments, but rather the natural plan of the cosmos and karmic law, so, you know, God's not out to get us, these serpents escape destruction to carry on their mission. These floods, Blavatsky calls the Great Dragon.
5: The Great Dragon has respect, but for the serpents of wisdom, the serpents whose holes are now under the triangular stones, i.e. the pyramids at the four corners of the world,
2: so they're in the uh, pyramids. They're in the pyramids, hiding in pyramids at the corners of the world. Yeah, that sounds right. So I see you're flat. No. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um. She didn't
4: mean corners in that sense. Okay. Uh, yeah. She meant like St. Louis I <laughs> Rob had to think about it Egypt. for a second,
3: though.
4: <laughs> There's pyramids in St. Louis, right? Sure. Over that direction somewhere.
1: So if we're becoming less... Maybe be pyramids b- in
4: Harrisburg. I don't know.
1: Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, if we're less materialistic does that mean like we have to like even removing ourselves from food and stuff like that
2: well we have to bear in mind that you know with the new age we're just over the cusp of being perfectly material so we've perfected our materiality so all of us are, are pretty materialistic still yes. but we're on a downward slide away from our materialism so yeah. but ultimately yes all things food I mean for like a, a Hindu ascetic is something that they take very little of mm. some barely eat Hmm. Or drink or any of that. Okay. So there were seven. Let's talk about the first race. The first
3: race. They were the first race. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Yay.
2: There were seven creators who evolved the seven primordial atoms. These atoms were projected, Adam, as in. The dude. A D A M, Adam. The name. So they were projected out of the creator's ethereal bodies. So they like pushed them out yeah they bore them but not like you know from their lady parts they pushed them out of their bodies out of their etherealness blavatsky understands us humans as having a tripartite existence we aren't just minds and bodies or bodies and souls we have an eternal spirit which is the spark of the absolute or god which is our monad descended to earth then, part two, we have an impermanent astral body, an entity between the spiritual and the material. So our egos and personalities are part of this impermanent self. But our Atman, or divine soul, that first part, can lend some of its immortality to our material ego to allow it to continue into the next incarnation.
3: Oh, did we talk Got about that? this before? So is this kind of...
2: We're about to. Oh.
3: I feel like we've
4: referenced this. You might might be from the future. We
2: we have. Well, we've talked about Blavatsky's concept of the soul, but I've never quite elaborated how the ego interacts with the soul.
0: So is it our soul going through all these different stages?
2: It is. Our monad is working its way up back to God. And our monad will sometimes pull aspects of our personality along with it, if we're good.
0: Okay. So it's not like each stage of yourself will behave the same way each like I could be completely uh, different in the next stage
2: depending on how you do in this life if you manage to join your personality with your monad then more of it will carry over but if you don't then your monad will just bop how off do without you do it
0: that? how do you we're getting there oh sorry. <laughs>
2: finally we have our physical bodies so the first men weren't initially physical they were formed from the ethereal parts of the creator angels these ethereal bodies would help to form the first physical bodies by shaping matter around them
4: so they were like the, uh was it, the, the faux hat? Yeah. The thing creating the, the matter?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were emanations of faux hat.
4: Emanations.
2: Nice. The first race were giants, albeit ethereal giants.
3: Weren't they like... 60 feet tall or something? But they were
2: not made of stuff.
3: Oh, maybe that's... They were spiritual
2: giants. They set the tone for the races to follow with their giantness. Their descendants, which you might be thinking about, made enormous life-size statues in their honor, but those were lost in the Atlantean deluge to come. Their descendants, the second root race, were 120 feet high and shrunk down to 60 feet. So there you go, Olivia. That must be what I was thinking. That's the second root race. The third root race were 20 to 25 feet high, and the fourth were smaller than that, but larger than our own five to eight foot tall fifth race. Man,
3: I'm only (laughs) (laughs) 5'3". I could be 25 feet tall. (laughs) So is
0: all this information in those documents that were hidden? Book of
2: Zion. Because, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So this is not what gonna th- find
4: that in the Upanishads.
0: So, yeah. So this is what has been hiding.
4: This is the hidden stuff. This is the good stuff. The d- oh. D- the, so so humanity and like the souls—they're all being chopped up. Like, We're getting tinier and tinier. Yeah. And smaller and smaller yep. bits. Yep.
3: Why are giants... Maybe this is off. Never mind. Why are giants always like the first race of like so many cultures and religions? <laughs> Do out you of? have a reason? Because it's true. I, <laughs> I'm, like, asking a legitimate... Like, I don't
0: it, know. I do I guess maybe it's process of perfecting something. This is a really stupid, like, comparison. But, like, I know, like, with papers in school, like, the longer it is, like, if you want to improve a paper, you typically shorten it. Because you, like, take out oh, what you I don't what need, you and it's just, like, it's more pure and more just
2: Uh Need I remind you, Olivia, that uh, millions of years ago... Dinosaurs wandered the earth.
3: Okay, but like...
2: There might be. I would be um, open to the idea that somewhere in our collective consciousness, if we are really constantly reincarnated spirits and energy, we have a sort of awareness of an era of giants, which scientifically we know happened. <laughs> That's my theory, we but I like to Shannon's be too.
3: Dynasty.
2: Yes. <laughs> <That's laughs> right. yes, Savannah. Be a Savannah takes from that thought that we used to be dinosaurs. Can
3: <laughs> we reincarnate back into dinosaurs, please? I,
4: I want to be a they raptor. Can't be maybe in the next eon. Maybe, maybe you get another oh, what shot. Did you say? Maybe in the next. Do you Deon. think
1: our like perfect oh, selves are Dion? dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs>
2: we could have all very well been the little mice running around underneath of the dinosaurs who would still have an awareness of the dinosaur (laughs) get out so
1: that's fun
2: Let's go on to the second race.
3: The second race. I don't
2: think you did that for the first one, did you? I did a
3: different variation. Oh,
2: okay. Well, that's good, because we have seven races, so you're going to want to mix that (gasps) up. Uh,
3: Different genres.
2: The first root race formed the second, and the second was more material than the astral shadows of the first race. And so the first race was absorbed into the more material second race. So they gave birth to them, and then they swallowed them up.
3: That sounds like nature. Well,
2: they sort of sucked them up, because they were ethereal spirits. And so they created these children that became, like, vacuums. So Blavatsky, yeah.
3: Vacuum kids, right.
2: Children can be, like, vacuums a little bit. They just
4: consume I feel
0: like I'm a vacuum sometimes.
2: (laughs) If
4: I drop something on the floor, I'm just like, Shannon. (laughs) 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 She cleans her right (laughs)
3: out. (laughs) If you also feel like a vacuum sometimes, subscribe to our podcast. Right, there you
4: go.
2: Blavatsky uses the myth of Castor and Pollux to illustrate how this worked and what it meant. Castor and Pollux were the twin sons of Leta by separate fathers. So I'm going to invite our alchemical actors to join us to give another rendition of our mythological theater and help break down the story of Leda, Tendarius, Castor, and Pollux.
7: Yay! Dear husband Tendarius! Yes, Leta? I have something I must confess to you.
6: You haven't been unfaithful.
7: No. Well, not exactly. This morning I went down to the pond where I bathe, naked, and there was a swan watching me. But I didn't think much of it, because while I was naked and I was in the pond, he was a completely different species and couldn't possibly have any interest in me. But when he swam up close and looked me deep in the eyes with this sultry sort of look, only a big white bird can master, and there I was naked in the pond, and
6: so... What did you do, Ida? I
7: had sex with a swan.
6: Ah! I thought you hadn't been unfaithful!
7: It was a freshwater fowl, Tendarius. I hardly think that counts. Hmm.
6: I suppose you're right. It was only a bird. Couldn't pollute my royal line. It's not like you can lay an egg. About that. What now, Leda?
7: Well, mid coitus, a few things struck me as a little unusual. First, for a swan, he really knows his way around a woman's body. And second, he kept shouting, Call me Zeus! I didn't know what he meant until after it was all over, and he left, and I got out of the pond and squatted in the reeds and laid an egg. I think what he meant was that he was- LEADER! Anyway, I've hatched two babies. One of them looks like you, but the other one is definitely the swans. Also, there's two girls. Same difference there.
2: Leda had given birth to Helen and Clytemnestra and Castor and Pollux. Helen would go on to be of Troy and Clytemnestra to marry Agamemnon and murder him in his bathtub. Castor and Pollux are our main interest today, though, because Pollux was the son of Zeus, an immortal, whereas Castor was the son of Tendarius, a mortal. This becomes significant when the twins get into some trouble by trying to marry their cousins.
6: My brother Castor! Yes, my brother Pollux. Do you think our cousins Phoebe and Polaria are like, most sexy? Most sexy indeed, they brother. Like, Let us marry them! But they are engaged to our other cousins, Idus and Lincius.
7: But we would much rather be married to you, Pollux. And you, Pollux.
6: That doesn't sound right. We'll work it out later. Come, brother. Let us carry these fair cousins away and marry and sex them in a place where, like, Idus and Lincius cannot find us.
2: Castor and Pollux brought Hilaria and Phoebe back to their home in Sparta. Ah, home sweet Sparta.
6: Come marry us and sex us. Right here, ladies. Ravish us. Stop, dastardly cousins! It is us, your cousins,
2: Idas and Lincius. Unhand our cousins, for it is us who would sex them.
6: Die, cousins! Pollux succeeded in slaying Lincius is bro, you cannot kill me. I'm like immortal.
2: mortal. But Castor was not so fortunate, and Idas mortally wounded him. Idas, you can kill me, for I am mortally wounded. In solidarity with his son Pollux, Zeus struck Idas dead on the spot for killing Castor.
6: Now, how is that? Father Zeus, thank you for killing our cousin. He was like a real dick. Wait, don't go yet, dude, because I'm sad, like, very, very sad. My dear brother Castor is dead, and I do not want to go on without him. Please send me to Hades to be among the dead where my brother Castor is, who is, like, dead. I will sacrifice my immortality for him, father. No, son. I know better thoughts. You shall share it, so that one of you may live by day,
2: I shall put you in the stars as the constellation Gemini, where you shall reside
6: when you are not living. Oh, master! I'm back! Let's go sex our cousins. Okay. I have to go be in the sky. You sex one, and I'll sex the other when it's, like, my turn. All right.
2: Lovatsky says this myth is a reference to the third root race, born of eggs from the second race. Oh. Right, just Rest like in this one. Dinosaurs. Oh, no. <laughs>
1: Dinosaurs.
3: I didn't even say reptilians.
2: <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I hadn't pre-planned that thought. It just occurred to me right now. And now Savannah's all over this <laughs> Top of my head theory that I've had.
1: (laughs) He told
0: her she couldn't talk about Reagan, so now she's she's talking about dinosaurs. (laughs) The first
2: half of the root race were mortal, having no divine spark to allow their personalities to survive them from one incarnation to the next. The second half of the root race were inspired by the gods, awakening their divine individuality so that they had a self to continue through the cycles of rebirth. We are blends of Castor and Pollux. Getting back to your question, Shannon, how we can move on. Castor is the mortal personality who will be separated from his divine brother at death unless Pollux lends him some of his divinity so that the personality can survive from incarnation to incarnation. Got it? Mm -hmm. So, the second race were hermaphroditic and reproduced asexually. Hell yeah. Yeah. Sounds like fun, right? Yeah, why or, not? or maybe not. I don't know. They, they missed it later. <laughs> right. They reproduced in three stages. The first involved laying eggs, from which members of the second race hatched, and the third involved sweating vital fluid, which then formed an oviform ball from which the new human emerged.
3: That's pretty close. <laughs> you
1: lost me.
2: <laughs> so you sweated out a ball...
1: Or laid and an it egg. turned into a person.
2: <laughs> These, those born from the overform balls were the third root race and the first race of humans to be divided into males and females.
0: But was they right about the egg, though? So they like laid eggs, or they did the ooze
3: thing?
2: Yeah, the oozing came later.
3: Oh, so it was eggs first,
0: and, then and eggs. we
2: are the oozes. We are the we are the sweat born.
3: That's why Blavatsky was using Castor and Pollux then to explain that race and how like the first half was eggs like um, the one brother and then the other brother was mortal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So she's using that as like a allegory. Is that the right term? Yeah.
2: All right. So this is where we've uh, marked our break in our discussion. So you guys uh, are going to get to, like, stretch your legs, but then you're going to have to come back because we're finishing this all in one day of recording. Uh, but for our listeners who, um, whose minds have been full of cosmogenesis and anthropogenesis today, uh, we're going to give them a little space to digest the oviform balls and
3: Lucky you. <laughs>
2: eggs full of casters and polluxes and what have you. What a
1: note to end on. You came from a ball <laughs> Goodbye, <laughs> well, I'm the third sporting. root race were sweat-born. We,
2: we're, 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 we're born from the born, from the born, from the over form balls. Uh, but we will be moving on to La Maria and Atlantis when we return <gasps> next week uh, for our listeners and in 10 minutes for those of us sitting around the circle. Going to Atlantis and Lemuria So thank you uh, for listening uh, Again, my name is Rob C. Thompson uh, Doctor of the Occult Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors We've got Olivia Littoral Master.
3: Yeah, I'm into lemurs
2: Okay <laughs> Le- Well, be- lemurs, not yet Lemurs are next time I'm excited James Caplanche <laughs> is Captain of the Table <laughs> <laughs> That was James Uh in his first Root Race incarnation, Savannah Verrett, Sister of the 84th.
1: Goodbye, everybody.
2: And Shannon Landers, our Instaquisitor. Bye. So uh, we've got uh, Ray Candela playing the role of Helena Blavatsky, really doing some work for us today. And uh, let's see if I can list off all the characters. Uh, we had Abby Cook playing the role of Lita. Uh, we had Dan Rosendale playing the role of Tindarius. We had Brad Forsyth uh, playing Caster, and Sam Steen playing Pollux, and Riley Claxton playing Hilaria. Uh, and yours truly, I was Zeus. Of course. I was a man. <laughs> Naturally. Oh, right, Olivia, who, what was the name of your characters again? Idis and... Lin, we, we had a debate. Idis and... Idis. <laughs> Lin... Lincius? Lin, 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 Lincius. Both of those dudes. Yep. That's me. Are we missing anybody from scene? I'm the scene? man. That's everybody, uh, right? Abby? Yeah. I said oh, Abby. Yeah, okay. Never mind. Yep. All right. Uh, so thank you for listening to our part one of the, occult, uh, the secret doctrine. I also said the occult doctrine. That's a different thing. Uh, uh, we ap- appreciate your uh, patience through this uh, heady and, I think, fun stuff.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's important. And we'll go to
2: Atlantis. We pro- so you've earned a trip to Atlantis next Friday.
3: One-way <gasps> yes. ticket because you're not getting back.
2: Right. Okay. <laughs> See you next time.